begin by recapping a bit the conclusion to my last lecture. And I apologize for always talking about sex so much. I know it's nothing you're interested in. Uh, but in any case, I thought it would be an appropriate introduction to Freud to just remind you where we ended. Remember, I concluded by arguing that Victorian prudery and emancipation for women were in complicated ways linked to each other. Victorian expectations of chastity for men, as well as for women, erected an invisible protective wall around middle-class Englishwomen, and that created a space that allowed them to move among men and to travel around alone, and really to behave with a kind of freedom that shocked middle-class women and men on the continent where no such prudery and puritanism existed. English and American Victorians espoused a single standard of sexual behavior to a degree that was unknown elsewhere. And this single standard was reinforced by some of the medical ideas that were current then. Doctors saw the male body as a kind of economic system, a microeconomy not unlike the political economy that governed the larger world. And like any productive system, this economy had only limited resources at its disposal. And if these resources were squandered, then ruin would ensue. Now, it's really easy to make fun of this economic idea being transposed from the commercial sphere to sexual life. But I would argue these ideas functioned unconsciously to help equalize the relations between the sexes. So what the Victorian misunderstanding of male physiology did was to universalize women's sexual vulnerability. It encouraged men, too, to feel vulnerable and to give them a stake in chastity by freighting ch sex with severe medical penalties, the possibility of impotence the possibility of loss of stamina and virility. And the very strong disapproval of the English for any sex outside of marriage, for men as well as women, operated, I would argue, as a kind of cultural equivalent of the 10 Hours Act, which restricted work hours in the factory. Both of them are interfering with freedom by acknowledging that in reality there is never a wholly free market in which all of the actors are equal. And by insisting that men are going to be doomed if they follow their predatory sexual instincts, the Victorians artificially intervene to help equalize the relations between the sexes. By restricting opportunity, psychologically admittedly, not physically and not legally, but by creating fears they set up intangible barriers against the sexual exploitation of women. Barriers, however imperfect, nevertheless contributed immeasurably to the dignity and freedom of English females. Now I want to look at another set of pictures, which in some ways I think illustrates both the uh, moralistic puritanism of the British, but also their sense that women are in fact uh, human too and need to be incorporated into the human world. 
These are pictures, and this is typically English, that are narrative, that tell a story. So here, whoops, here is Augustus Eggs, series of three pictures called Past and Present. Now here's the story. There is a happy home, or a once a happy home, uh, but the husband, this one is called The Letter, has found an incriminating note. And both husband and wife are devastated. Uh, she was pleading, she is pleading for forgiveness. And here in the background are the innocent little daughters who have built a house of cards which is now crashing uh, to the ground. The second picture is years later, uh, the abandoned daughters. These two children are older, they are lonely, they are motherless, they are fatherless, they're looking up at a cold moon. And then this same moon is looking down on the mother. She is now homeless, living under a London bridge, and you can see the frail legs of her little illegitimate child peeking out from under her shawl. She has no future except prostitution. Otherwise, both of them are are, are, are going to starve. So the whole mood in this picture is really heavy with remorse. Now, as I said, this picture is typically English in that it's a narrative and it's a moralizing one. But the woman is an object of pity, not of loathing. And the lesson, I think, is one arguing for forgiveness. Now, here is a narrative contained in a, well, here, this is another one that uh, argues for forgiveness. Here we have a daughter being expelled out into the snow. Uh, her stern and unforgiving father is clearly being condemned in this picture. Uh, one sister is pleading for mercy. The other has her head in her hands. Another is banging on the wall in despair. And the mother is depicted as powerless. So kind of a male world avenging itself against uh, a woman's one slip. And here is another narrative in one picture. This is called The Awakening Conscience by Holman Hunt. And it shows us a kept woman, uh, basically the concubine of this man, who suddenly starts up from her lover's lap with a pang of conscience. And they've been sitting at the piano together playing a song about innocence and youth, uh, oft on a stilly night. And that will be posted, the lyrics will be posted on our website. This was a song very familiar to Victorian uh, readers. And on the floor, you see the dropped glove. Uh, that's a symbol of lost innocence. Uh, but if you didn't get it, over here is Tennyson's poem, Tears, Idle Tears, uh, to remind you. And the woman's whole situation as a kept woman uh, is obvious uh, from the position of the cat, this predatory, tigerish male, and the wounded, uh, captivated bird uh, below. So the condemnation in this painting is clear, and it is a condemnation of the man, uh, not the girl. She is moving towards the light. This window here is actually a mirror that is reflecting something she's seeing out here. She's moving not toward damnation, but regeneration and rehabilitation. And finally, Let's look at what I think is the best of these pictures. Ford Maddox Brown, Take Your Son, Sir. Now here we have a birth. Basically what we've got is a trope, a Madonna and child, which has been secularized. The mirror behind her head forms a kind of halo, 
uh, and she is surrounded by stars on the wallpaper. The folds in the baby's garment, of course, make it appear as if he's coming straight out of her womb. Now, this is a woman thrusting forward her naked newborn and demanding that the man, and I would argue also society at large, we are also part of this picture, the man accept responsibility for its conception. We can see the man himself reflected in the mirror behind her. Now, as you know, mirrors have always been a favorite uh, of painters. It's a way for them to show their skill. And uh, I hope you remember, let's see if I can get these, these mirrors we've seen before, the, the Arnolfini wedding. I don't think it's going to, I think these pictures are too big to, to show. Oh, there we are. Okay, so you, re you remember how fascinated European painters are with mirrors. And here we have a mirror then again. This mirror is not just there, however, to show how skilled uh, Ford Maddox Brown is, but actually it adds to the story. And the child, too, is gazing out at the viewer, demanding to be recognized by society itself. Now, I think the uniqueness of this English Victorian morality can be seen in its novels and its paintings if we contrast it to French treatments of similar subjects. Uh, just, just to give you other examples of the same theme, here's another English one, found drowned. She's obviously a suicide, a fallen woman. Now here we have Toulouse-Lautrec alone. And this is simply a sex worker exhausted uh, from her job. Uh, Toulouse-Lautrec is looking at her with a kind of flat, dispassionate neutrality. There is no sympathy there, but there's also no judgment, no condemnation. Uh, and the same is true for his prostitutes lined up for inspection in 1894. There's no real point of view being expressed here. Uh, he's not demanding that the viewer take a position on prostitution or on their lives one way or another. But Victorian depictions of sexuality is always, are always morally freighted. They always imply that there is a choice there for the people in the picture and the people viewing the picture. Now, this mid-century English view of women, which moralized sexual decisions, was part and parcel of the English liberal moral outlook. It was an outlook based on a sense of individualism, a belief in rational choice, a belief that reform is possible in the moral sphere and indeed in the political sphere, and this was a period in which reform after reform was being passed. It was largely <coughs> optimistic, in fact, about the chances for human improvement and human happiness. For a while, it looked as if the continent was going to adopt some of these same liberal ideas wholesale. But by the end of the century, intellectual currents were gaining ground there that offered a competing view of human nature and its possibilities, one that was much more pessimistic about the prospects of reform and improvement and liberalism in general, one that accorded the irrational much more weight in the life of individuals and the life of society uh, than at any time that we've seen uh, since before the Enlightenment. And it was a view that far from seeing women as vulnerable and needing protection, or alternatively as pure and able to up 
society and refine their morals and tastes, this is a view that often sees women as embodying sexuality, embodying the very forces that of, that of unreason that are bound to defeat reason and progress. And from Norway to Vienna, women become icons of sexuality and therefore of the irrational. Now here is Gustav Klimt's Danai of 1907. This depicts the moment of conception when Zeus impregnates a young woman in a shower of gold. And this is how actually Hercules gets conceived. One contemporary commented, here the entire female body is an appendage to her genitals. Now this is not a kind of innocent celebration of the female flesh the way we see in Renoir. Like Nietzsche, like Schopenhauer, like Freud, and like the playwrights, Ibsen and Strindberg in Scandinavia, artists like Klimt see sex as both necessary and fraught with danger. And you may remember uh, the Judith and Holofernes that I showed you last time. Let's look at Holofernes' head. There's no agony here. It is pure submission. And here is Klimt's uh, Salome, a favorite subject of this period. It was uh, uh, the subject of a play by Oscar Wilde and of an opera by Richard Strauss. And here Salome is holding the head of John the Baptist. Now, Klimt himself had reason to fear women. This was a guy who had so many affairs that when he died in 1918, there was a whole raft of women showed up at the reading of his will with no fewer than 14 illegitimate children in tow. And I think it's no wonder that Klimt felt, well, exhausted. Um, but lest you dismiss such images as the sexual obsessions of one crazy Viennese, let me show you some from the Norwegian expressionist Edvard Munch, who is probably best known to you through this 1893 painting. I think it's a perfect illustration uh, of how people feel at final exam time, the screen. OK, so this is what we all know Munch for. I actually sent my daughter once a, a, a sort of a rubber doll, life-size rubber doll, depicting uh, the screen for her exam period. But here is Klimt doing his Madonna in 1895. Now, whatever Klimt may mean by Madonna, this Mary is no virgin. Uh, sorry, not Klimt, Munch. And Munch was always painting the same subject over and over again, obsessively. Here is Madonna again in 1902, slightly different, but pretty much the same. Now this Madonna has a child, but it's not the child we might expect. Is this a fetus? Is it a monster? And of course, we see here swimming around the, the frame a bunch of uh, little tadpoles, or perhaps they are sperm. Now, unlike the 1895 picture, now the Madonna's eyes appear to be open. Or do they? I think he's painted here a kind of optical illusion. If you look down, her eyes appear shut. If you look up, her eyes appear to be open. Now, Munch makes Klimt's fear of women seem like kid stuff. Uh, let me take a painting from 1907, The Death of Marat. Uh, now, the assassination of Marat, who was a Jacobin journalist agitator, uh, during the French Revolution by the young idealist Charlotte Corday, 
had long been a favorite among painters. And you can see lots of painters doing this theme. They either make her a villain because they love the French Revolution and love Marat, or they make her uh, not, uh, uh, a heroine, as, as she sort of is here, standing up for the freedom of the provinces. But Munch turns a political deed into a sex crime. And here is, once again, Charlotte Corday. And now let's look at this one from 1893. What is being depicted here? Is this woman the comforter? It becomes clear, I think, in this 1895 version of the same thing, but now it's given a title, Vampire. And of course, her hair turns into his blood as it runs down his back. Now note that when men appear in these paintings at all, they're usually depicted as overpowered, outwitted, or maybe even worse, as we saw in the Munch uh, Charlotte Corday. Freud believed that decapitation dreams represented fears of castration. And all of these castrations that we, uh, sorry, uh, decapitations that we see in Klimt may uh, bring this out. All of, them, all of them portray men who are defeated by the strength and sexuality of the overpowering female. And finally, here's the poster for the Austrian Oscar Kokoschka's expressionist play from 1908, Murderer, Hope of Women. Now, what do we see here? What does this picture of a woman holding the body of a man mimic? Just as Munch's Madonna is a, taking an old trope of Madonna and Child. This is a reworking of another trope of the Pieta, images of grieving Mary holding the body of her dead son, Jesus. Now, uh, most people are familiar with Michelangelo's beautiful 1499 sculpture, but the Pieta, like the Nativity, like the Crucifixion, uh, can be found throughout Europe, from Italy uh, to Spain, uh, to Germany, to Poland, to France, uh, and on up in the modern era, Chagall has one of 1957. If you saw enough of these, which Kokoschka as a European would have seen, the religious message, motherly love, might well begin to disappear, and collectively, these might begin to look ominously like images of male weakness and female dominance. So let's look back again at Kokoschka's poster. This is a nightmarish, hallucinatory pieta. Here, the fe it's the female figure that is dead. I mean, she is a skull with hair. The male figure is alive, although flayed. He doesn't seem to have any skin left. And he's imprisoned in her ghoulish grasp. She's not cradling him. She's overwhelming him. So this is really a reversal of the vision of feminine redemption that we saw with our romantic painter Caspar David Friedrich mourning in, in the giant mountain. And finally, uh, one last image in this collection. Here's Klimt again. This is his Palace Athena of 1908. Now, whose Palace Athena? Do we know? Any? A Greek goddess of what? Wisdom, right. So here we've got wisdom. And, you know, she's looks pretty strong, except look what we see here. This manic figure sticking its tongue out 
at her breastplate. This is Dionysius. What is Dionysius thought of? Party, party, wine, grapes. So what Klimt is doing is reflecting a new understanding of wisdom, very, very different from the Enlightenment. Uh, in fact, it's one that will uh, echo Nietzsche's, as we'll soon see. The message here, I think, is clear. The instinctive, the irrational is anchored at the very heart of reason. You can't separate them from each other. Now, we can find evidence for all of these themes, pessimism, irrationality, the antagonism between male and female hardwired into our biology, the linking of sex with danger, in many fields at end of the century, fin de siècle culture. But they come together in a particularly interesting form, and a form that's had influence right up into our time in Freudian psychoanalysis. So for the rest of our period, I'm going to look at these themes as they have bearing on Freud and his thought. Now, Freudian psychology grew out of three distinct currents in the late 19th century. Its emphasis on instinct, on desire, being as powerful as reason. Second, on the psychogenic origins of disease. And third, on its materialism, on the biological substructure underlying much of our identity that we once thought was somehow independent from biology. So uh, these are all themes in late 19th century thought. And let's look at the first of them, the new stress on instinct, on the irrational, and therefore on sexuality, as a kind of substructure of human personality, an inevitable component of everything that a person does, and something that can always sort of intervene and thwart his conscious plans, whatever he thinks he wants, whatever his reason. We have recently seen a wonderful example of this in the uh, recent former governor of uh, New York. He knew. He knew what was likely to happen if he did X, Y, Z, but he did X, Y, Z. And no one should have known better than he, since he spent a lifetime investigating people who did X, Y, Z. Anyway, these murderous women in Fondasiaco paintings may not be intended to represent women at all. Maybe they are, in fact, allegories for desire itself, for the dangers of desire. Now, the view that man's intentions can be thwarted by his desires isn't exactly new. Traditional Christianity had insisted upon the irrational component within the human will that could turn your best plans into disaster. This flaw in the very structure of our desires, it labeled original sin. But the late 19th century was much more ambivalent about the irrationalism there. For many thinkers now, the instinctive and the irrational was, and I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably, was both the source of danger, of disaster, but also of creativity, something to be celebrated. The instinctive was seen as bringing incredible energy, uh, indeed being the source of creativity. So this take on the irrational uh, is really coming to fruition. I think you see early signs of it, of course, uh, around during Romanticism. Uh, and that, too, is making 
the first initial assaults, assaults on the Enlightenment at the beginning of the 19th century. But the late 19th century version now is much more openly hostile, not only to reason, but to a whole a collection of traditional or 18th century values as well. And I think we can see this particularly in the thought of two men who exercised an enormous influence over Central European youth, Italians, Swiss, Austrian, Germans, right on up to Scandinavia at the end of the century. And the first of these men was Arthur Schopenhauer. Uh, he was a German philosopher who was ignored during his lifetime, but then became a cult figure in the 1880s during Freud's uh, youth and young manhood. Schopenhauer's ideas were also a significant part of the mental furniture of Freud's teachers and mentors at Vienna's medical school. Now, Schopenhauer put forth an early version of the concept of repression, repression repressing some early trauma, a concept that Freud would later make famous. Schopenhauer believed that if a person experienced, and I quote, a sorrow that is so harrowing that it becomes positively unbearable, then nature will seize on madness as the last means of saving life. The tormented mind destroys the thread of memory and fills up the gaps with fictions and thus seeks refuge in madness from mental suffering that exceeds its strength. So something terrible has happened, you can't face it, and your body basically saves you, saves your life by destroying your memory of it and putting something else in its place. Now, Schopenhauer's main work was entitled, in its English translation, The World as Will and Idea, which is a terrible translation. The word for will should be drive, as in sex drive, any kind of drive. Now, in this book, Schopenhauer sneered at the Enlightenment's optimism. He sneered at all the do-gooders of his own generation who ignored the fact he said, that life was in its very essence, I quote, howling, colossal suffering. The only thing real in the universe, Schopenhauer believed, was not reason, but blind, unconscious, purposeless drive, what Freud would call later the id. And since each individual is moved by these drives, the universe is a chaos of conflicting wills, of conflicting drives that can ultimately lead us only to mutual destruction. And the most basic of all of these instincts and drives, Schopenhauer felt, was sexual. And this instinct is at the heart of the will to live. In it is concentrated a person's whole being. But regardless of any illusions of romantic love that you might entertain, Sexual relations themselves are, in fact, he thought, brutally impersonal because nature controls them. And nature cares nothing for individuals. And what people call love, that is simply, he said, the pressure of future generations clamoring for life. Now, Schopenhauer didn't approve of sex. In fact, for the pleasure of what he called, and I quote, a few epileptic moments, the individual is trapped into marriage, which, of course, he thought was a bad idea. In fact, it is the fraud of sexual pleasure, 
these few epileptic moments that keeps this whole hideous process, existence, going. It produces yet more life and therefore more suffering. Now this is, you've got to say, a picture of unrelieved pessimism. And it's not surprising that Schopenhauer is thought to be a violent hater of women and misogynist because it's women out there that makes these guys want to keep perpetuating the species. Schopenhauer's most famous disciple was Friedrich Nietzsche, who was the object of a cult in his own lifetime. Now, Nietzsche came from a long line of Lutheran pastors. But when he was only three, his father had an accidental blow to his head which destroyed his mind, and he died a year later. And this death left little Nietzsche to grow up in an environment ruled entirely by females. There was his 19-year-old mother. There was his sister, Elizabeth. There was a domineering grandmother and two bossy spinster aunts. And it's been suggested that Nietzsche's rather grim view of the relationship between the sexes grows out of this environment. Nietzsche himself, however, was a kind of boy wonder. He became a full professor of Greek when he was only 25. Uh, the world lay at his feet until he published his first book in 1872, which was a celebration of Greek culture. It was entitled The Birth of Tragedy from the Spirit of Music. Now, this book argues that Greek culture, far from celebrating rationality and the golden mean, as we always thought, really expressed the duality between two spirits, cultural spirits, one he calls Apollonian, and it is symbolized by the god Apollo, and was represented by Greek sculpture, just a symbolic representation, and by dreams, because what do dreams and Greek sculpture have in common? They both mimic reality. They are representational. The other spirit, which is at war with the Apollonian, is the Dionysian, symbolized by the god Dionysius, who is non-imagistic. That is the spirit of music, of song, of dance. And instead of dreams, it is represented by intoxication. And in his very first lines, Nietzsche compares this dualism between Apollonian and Dionysian to the duality between the sexes, since these dualities, like the sexes, are involved, and I quote, in perpetual strife with only periodically intervening reconciliation. Now, the Dionysian spirit is initially a formless chaos, potentially destructive, but at the same time full of creative energy. If it could only come together in harmony with the Apollonian spirit, with its recognition of limits, of discipline. Nietzsche's book had no footnotes. Uh, he didn't buttress his argument with quotations from relevant texts. Uh, this failing, as you know, would have sunk him in History 5, and it practically sunk him in academia as well. The birth of tragedy caused a great uproar because it departed from every accepted standard of scholarship in classical philology, and this classical philology was notoriously nitpicking and dry as a discipline. Nietzsche also contracted syphilis twice when he was a student, and this disease may explain why he suffered a psychotic break at age 29. And after that, 
he experienced uh, mood swings between creative euphoria, bouts of megalomania, and terrible physical and mental suffering. Here he is at age 31. Uh, the mustache is already starting to overpower him uh, and will eventually do so. Uh, later on, in 1889, he goes fully insane. Now, because of his illness, Nietzsche could never manage continuous work at his desk. So most of his books are merely collections of short aphorisms. And even in the case of what you're reading this week, Will to Power, they're compilations of his notes done by a uh, not terribly reliable uh, sister of his. Now, his illness may also, I think, account for the grandiosity of much of his writing. In his autobiographical book, Ecce Homo, here is the man, of course, he's quoting Christ in this, in the Latin Bible, written in 1888. This has chapter titles like, Why I Am So Intelligent, <laughs> Why I Write Such Good Books, Why I Am Fate. Uh, once Nietzsche described himself as simply, I am dynamite. And by that, he meant he was going to blow up the certitude of European bourgeois culture. Now, we don't have time to discuss uh, Nietzsche's thought himself, uh, but some people, I should say, think that he is, and they have good reason for doing so, the master stylist in the German language. His aphorisms are fantastic. Uh, we can't go into his ideas, either interesting and repellent though they are. But even more than Schopenhauer, Nietzsche was a cult figure among university youth. And it was said that in 1914, young lieutenants in the German army went off to the front carrying, uh, carrying copies of his Zarathustra in their knapsacks. Now, we see Nietzsche's affinity with Freud most deeply in his notion of the unconscious as responsible for most of what we do, the irrational source of creativity but something dangerous, something that has to be honored and respected, but contained. Now, Freud always said, semi-facetiously, uh, that he had avoided deliberately reading Schopenhauer and Nietzsche until after he had fully worked out psychoanalysis, because he wanted to uh, preserve his own claim to originality. But we may question whether Freud is being entirely candid here. It is very unlikely that he hadn't read them as a teenager before his career plans had gelled. And in any case, he wouldn't have had to read very much in order to get their ideas, because he grew up in a climate where these ideas or something like them were simply part of the air that young German-speaking intellectuals, smart people like yourself who wanted to be in the know, would just breathe. And this philosophy, their philosophy, not only in influenced Freud's own thought, it provided a climate of opinion that was favorable then to the acceptance of his ideas. Now let's look at how these ideas uh, developed. Freud got his medical degree in 1881. At first he hoped for a life doing pure research. He worked in a lab for a bit and did interesting work on the gonads of the shark. But the necessity of earning a living, particularly urgent because he had now met the woman he planned to marry, made Freud take a hospital position. And he hoped that this could be a step 
toward an academic career in neurology. In 1885, Freud applied for a prestigious postdoc travel grant to go to Paris to study under the famous psychiatrist Jean-Martin Charcot. Now, Charcot, who is a, just a towering figure in 19th century medicine called the Napoleon of uh, psychiatry, was then making a considerable reputation for himself in treating hysterics with the new technique of hypnosis. And notice the sort of sexualization here of the representation of hysteria. She's in a kind of semi, uh, state of semi-undress. Freud studied under this man, and when he returned home, he hoped for an offer to go to a university. But he wasn't offered such a job, and he was too proud to apply for it. From the first, however, Freud found he was not interested in setting bones or uh, cooling fevers or curing measles and flu, the normal business of a GP. He was interested in the kinds of complaints that didn't fit the organic problems that medical school had trained him to teach, to treat. So he begins to see more and more women suffering from hysteria. Now, hysteria is a chronic condition, or it was then. Uh, it's a malady that today has just about disappeared. But then it was recognized as a disease, and it had been actually since the ancient Greeks, who uh, thought hysteria came from a dislodged uterus that was wandering around in the abdominal, abdominal cavity. In fact, the word hysteria comes from the Greek word meaning uterus. The symptoms were a kind of grab bag, difficulty sleeping, numbness in a limb, hoarseness, loss of voice, mood swings, and sometimes all the symptoms of pregnancy except, of course, the baby. And it was at least as common at, at the late 19th century uh, among middle-class women as anorexia and bulimia were in the late 20th century. And Freud began to work then with an older GP, Dr. Josef Breuer, using a combination of electrotherapy and hypnosis. But Breuer found that having his patients just talk about their problems seemed to have a therapeutic effect. So this brings us to the second important strand in Freud's thought. The first is the emphasis on drive and instinct. And these, these come about uh, from the positive results the two men got with something they called talking therapy, which encouraged in Freud a suspicion that hysteria was not organically based at all, but was psychogenic. That is, it had psychological causes. And sometime in the early 1890s, these two men switched from hypnosis to having their patients simply tell them what certain things reminded them of, and then what those things reminded them of, and what those things then reminded them of. And this technique is called free association. And the technique seemed to uncover evidence of an early trauma lying buried in the patient's past. Shades here of Schopenhauer. And free association allowed the patient to relive the trauma by bringing on a kind of catharsis, crying, sobbing, screaming as they go through this old, horrible, wounding event again. And having then gone through it again, they have relief. And they called this procedure 
the talking cure. Now, although the men kept the sexual aspects of their cases in the background in their 1895 book, Three Studies in Hysteria, they were convinced that sex was somehow or other at the basis of these problems. Now, to be thinking that sex was involved with problems like false pregnancies was not unusual. By Freud's time, however, the wandering uterus theory of hysteria had been uh, discarded as an explanation. But doctors were still looking for some connection between women's delicate, complicated sexual nature and their symptoms. And Freud began to believe that all neuroses were the result of a person's repressing sexual abuse that he or she had experienced as a child, usually at the hands of a close relative. Now, this theory has unfortunately been misnamed the seduction hypothesis, but it would be more accurately described as the child abuse hypothesis. So convinced was Freud that all of his hysterical patients had been sexually abused that at one point he wrote in a letter that he had to reluctantly conclude that his own father had sexually abused his own four sisters and one brother. Somehow he didn't think he had been included in that uh, little uh, fivesome thing. Now, this was truly a shocking hypothesis, and it was greeted with absolute silence when Freud gave a paper on it to the other neurologists in Vienna. Sometime between 1896 and 1900, however, Freud gave up the seduction hypothesis. And instead of arguing that hysteria was the result of an actual rape of the child by a relative, he arrived at the conviction that hysteria was the result of a child's imagining a rape by one of his parents. And imagining a rape because that was what the child deeply wished. Now that shift marks what psychoanalysts call the breakthrough in Freud's thought. But a characteristic feature of Freudian theory is that, like Schopenhauer, Freud places desire at the center of human psychology, desire of which the patient himself is unconscious. He calls this the id. But before I talk about this fundamental shift, I must mention the third strain in Freud's thought, quite different from the Nietzschean Schopenhauerian stress on irrational uh, drives, and different as well from Joseph Breuer's emphasis on talking and the psychological bases of disease. In fact, this strain, you could say, is almost uh, incompatible with this other strain. And this is the materialism championed by the scientific establishment in Freud's day. And it is this materialism that delayed Freud's making his breakthrough, breakthrough from child abuse to child uh, fantasy for a long time. So let me backtrack a bit. We must never forget that Freud thought of himself as a natural scientist, someone committed to a materialist explanation of the world. And in the context of the late 19th century, this is someone who considers religion a rival to be beaten back. And nowhere is this rivalry felt more strongly than among psychiatrists. The priest, after all, doesn't challenge the expertise of the surgeon. Uh, 
But he does have his shingle out when it comes to psychological maladies because every week his confidential conversations with his parishioners in the confessional booth, not the psychiatrist's couch, provides a kind of alternative talking tour. And it's no accident that the German word for psychiatrist is Seelenarzt, which means soul doctor, doctor of the soul. So you can see here the difficulty for Freud if the causes of hysteria really lay not in the body but in the mind. Wouldn't psychiatrists be suspected of curing their patients by suggestion? And if so, how is that any different from the cures brought about by faith healers or by, say, the waters at Lourdes? And it is this desire to dissociate their science from anything smacking of the spiritual or the magical that is behind the oath that Freud's professor made all of his lab assistants take. They had to swear to be faithful to the principle, and I'm quoting, no forces other than the common physical chemical ones are active within the organism. Now, what is chemical about the unconscious, you might ask? So you can see that whatever Freud's damning suspicions might be about the psychogenic origins of hysteria, he continues to have a great stake in an organic, physical explanation and therefore has a great psychological barrier of his own to overcome before he can arrive at his discovery of the unconscious. That is, it is the unconscious of the child that wants to be seduced by the parent, not an actual child of his. And he doesn't overcome this barrier quickly. But it is his commitment to organic explanations that explains why, as you see from reading Dora, Freud still firmly believes that masturbation does physical damage to her in a way that is fundamentally connected to her hysteria. Now, these kinds of organic physical explanations exist right alongside the psychogenic ones in Freud's thought. They never get entirely uh, reconciled with each other, and they never entirely disappear. And it is his commitment to materialist explanations that explains what I think is one of the strangest episodes in his uh, career, his long intellectual infatuation with the German ear, nose, and throat specialist, Dr. Wilhelm Fleece. Now, if Freud believed that psychological problems were sexual in nature, it was Fleece's belief that the origins of sexual problems were lo was located not in the psyche, the mind, but in the nose. Nosebleeds were connected, Fleece thought, with a woman's monthly biorhythms, and therefore sexual problems were best handled by treating her nose. Now, initially, Fleece uh, tried cocaine injections and cauterizations, uh, but his ambition yearned for less conservative treatments, operations. He hadn't succeeded, however, in getting any of his own patients to sign up for the cure. So in 1898, his friend Freud persuaded him to operate on Freud's own patient, Emma Epstein. Now, Emma was a beautiful and talented young woman, 
typical of many of the young women Freud treated. Her family was well-connected with the prominent progressive Jewish cultural and political circles that were leading, you might say, uh, setting the tone of Vienna. And Dora's family is also uh, part of this, uh, this circle. Uh, Dora is re really Ida Bauer, uh, the sister of Otto Bauer, who was the leader of Austria's Social Democrats after World War I. Emma Eckstein's own sister was a prominent feminist, and she was a social reformer herself. Emma Eckstein wrote articles on the need for sex education for children. She shared Freud's views on the dangers of masturbation, which could, I quote, destroy the youth and strength, both physical and mental, of its victims. And Emma complained that, quote, universities don't offer courses on how to treat masturbation effectively. So Freud actually seems to have trained Emma Eckstein to become a psychoanalyst herself because she was seeing patients at the time when she came to Freud for treatment. Emma had been showing hysterical symptoms lately, she said. Uh, she had been suffering from menstrual cramps. Assuming that sex was involved, Freud referred her to Dr. Wilhelm Fleece. And so Fleece came in from Berlin, operated, removed part of the bone of Emma's nose, and then he went back to Germany. But Emma didn't get well. Her nose swelled up and down like an avalanche. That's the quote. She suffered massive hemorrhages. She was in such pain she couldn't sleep without heavy doses of morphine. And here are the results in Freud's own words. Dearest Wilhelm, he's writing, please, I wrote to you that the swelling and hemorrhages would not stop and that suddenly a fetid odor set in. So I arranged for Garrisony, another doctor, to be called in. And he's inserted a drainage tube. Two days later, profuse bleeding started again. And Rosanes, another doctor, cleaned the area, removed some sticking blood clots, and suddenly he pulled at something like a thread, kept on pulling. And before either one of us had a chance to think, at least half a meter of gauze had been removed from the cavity. The next moment came a flood of blood. The patient turned white. Her eyes bulged. She had no pulse. Obviously, Emma Eckstein was going into shock. He packed the cavity with gauze and was able to stop the bleeding, but... It was enough to make the poor creature unrecognizable. Freud, by the way, fled to the next room and got sick at his stomach. When he returned, Emma greeted him with, so, this is the strong sex. Incredibly, Fleece had somehow accidentally left a half meter of gauze in Emma Eckstein's nose. Now, did Freud blame his friend Fleece for this accident, for nearly causing Emma's death? Here's what he wrote in his letter. You did as well as anyone could. Sound familiar? You're doing a heck of a job, Brownie. Then tearing off the gauze remains one of those accidents that happened to the most fortunate and circumspective, circumspective surgeons, as you know. And of course, no one is blaming you, nor would I think why anyone should. In fact, the other two attending physicians did blame Fleece for his incredible negligence. At one point, Freud had a passing insight and wrote Fleece that, we have done her, Emma Eckstein, an injustice. She was not at all abnormal. But later he rejects it, claiming that her hemorrhages had been hysterical in nature 
and the result of sexual longing. Emma's face was permanently disfigured from the operation. So here we have the three strands of Freud's thought. The romantic views of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche on instinct and desire, uh, repressing the unconscious. We have the psychogenic talking to a cure of Josef Breuer, and we have the neurophysiological physiological materialist scientist. The 1890s are years of intense intellectual efforts by Freud to bring these three strands together and make them compatible with each other. And it wasn't easy. And to understand how this synthesis was affected, we have to look beyond intellectual influences to where Freud's personal biography comes together with events outside the window of Freud's home on Bergasse 19. It was Freud's own self-analysis during these uh, mid to late 1890s that were at the heart of his discoveries. And they stem, in fact, from his probing his own psyche. And so therefore, we have, I think, a justifiable interest in wanting to know more about him as a person, about his milieu, and what it meant to be a progressive, and above all, a Jew, in a city like late 19th century Vienna. Because it is this context that shapes his thought at every turn. Now, Vienna was the capital of the Habsburg monarchy, a great power, 50 million people, but it was in many ways a very old-fashioned place. It was a city where oxen were brought in by hoof every day from Hungary to the market. Uh, it was a place where army officers who looked more like peacocks uh, wore probably the most beautiful uniforms in Europe. It was a city of the waltz and of elaborate court rituals. Franz Josef, who had been uh, become the boy emperor in 1848-49 and who died only in 1916, was fully aware that he personified the monarchy and the empire. And he was determined to keep alive all of its traditions. So he refused to allow elevators in the royal palace. He resisted as much as possible riding in motor cars, preferring to take uh, coaches and buggies. He even insisted that the very smallest Habsburg, uh, when carried by in the arms of its nurse, be given the full salute by the royal guards. Now, Vienna was a city of cathedral spires with the very visible presence of the Catholic Church, a church which, with which the Habsburg monarchs themselves identified in conspicuous public rituals. You can see here this is a Corpus Christi parade, and the whole royal family is taking part. But Vienna was also, in important ways, a modern city, a liberal city, dominated by a liberal bourgeoisie, largely Jewish, by a liberal university. It was a city of experimentation in the sciences and in the arts. And in fact, though, uh, French historians and Parisians would dispute it, I think Vienna was the cultural capital of Europe at this time and the birthplace of modernism. Let me just list for you some of the important names. You'll know some of them, probably others not. In ph philosophy, uh, Wittgenstein. In economics, Friedrich Hayek. In music, Gustav Mahler, Arnold Schoenberg, whom you heard uh, before class. In math, Kurt Gödel. And Vienna, in Freud's time, 
offered manifold opportunity to Jews, which naturally operated as a kind of magnet pulling in Jewish immigrants from the eastern parts of the dual monarchy and from Russia. Freud's family, Dora's family, were mo both initially from Moravia, uh, and they were immigrants to, into Vienna. Now, Jews did brilliantly in Vienna. They were the dominant group, not only in economic life, but in journalism, in law, in medicine, in much of the arts and culture. Unlike the Emperor of Germany, Emperor Franz Josef did not discriminate, and Jews got appointed to high positions in the Habsburg army. They were even ennobled without having to convert. But such success by such recent arrivals provoked resentment, and Vienna was also a place with a lot of open hostility being expressed, and a lot of petty indignities remained a normal part of Jewish life. And here is where the political and the personal intersect. When Freud was a young boy, his father told him about an incident in which he was walking down the street, and another man, actually he was walking down the sidewalk, and another man pushed him off the sidewalk into the street, knocking off his hat in the process. What did you do, little Sigmund asked. I went out in the street and picked up my hat, the father shrugged. Little Sigmund burned with humiliation at his father's mild manner, and he vowed revenge. His first career dream as late adolescent was to go into politics, undoubtedly to defeat the old-fashioned parts of Austria that he hated and to fight for the modern Austria of his dreams. But he decides to go in science instead a more prudent career for a young Jew since medicine was much less politically exposed, obviously, than politics, less vulnerable. But when Freud applied for a postdoc to go to Paris to study with Charcot, he was convinced that anti-Semitism would prevent him from getting that award and that one of the other two applicants for the position, Christians, he called them, would get it instead. Well, in fact, Freud was wrong. He got the postdoc, but this issue, he felt, lay in wait for him everywhere. So there is the personal, and at the same time we have the political. In the 1880s, the enemies of liberalism in Austria began to mobilize. And in the middle of the 90s, just as Freud's ideas are beginning to crystallize, these enemies go into the ascendant. Now, who are the enemies of liberalism? And here I'm speaking particularly of political liberalism. They are the new political parties produced by recent democratization in the franchise and the rise of mass politics. First of all, there's obviously the Marxist Social Democrats. They're committed to revolution, not to converting people, but guess what? Overthrow uh, the government. And Dora's brother, Otto Bauer, would soon be their leader. And then there are the ethnic nationalist parties, committed to reorganizing the whole Habsburg state on an ethnic basis, each ethnicity getting control of its own municipalities and its own regions. Now, the crown was committed to mutual tolerance, kind of Rodney King, can't we all get along? But the development of parliamentary democracy in the Austrian half of the empire in the final years of the 19th century 
institutionalized these nationalist antagonisms as each ethnic group set up its own political party and then began to compete in the electoral process with the others. Ultimately, there were 22 different parties elected to the Austrian parliament, most of them with an ethnic, therefore exclusivist, basis. And many of them were anti-Semitic. But the antagonism between, actually, the Czechs and the Germans, the these two ethnic groups, was in fact the worst of all. And soon, fighting broke out between Czechs and Germans that got so violent that it paralyzed the very institutions designed to let reason prevail, parliament. And the result was the Austrian parliament became simply unworkable. And Franz Josef gave up on it, and from 1900 on, that is the very beginning of the 20th century, he returned Austria to kind of semi-absolutist system of government, the kind of government it had before 1867. Key decisions are made no longer by representative bodies, you can't do it, but by the crown and the appointed bureaucracy. This is clearly a victory for a kind of irrationalism, uh, but you have to ask, what's the alternative? And third and finally, and most painfully for Freud, there was the third political force produced by mass politics, not so important in the empire as a whole, but very important in his own Vienna. Uh, not just the Social Democrats, not just the ethnic nationalists, but the so-called Christian Social Party. Based among small shopkeepers and minor bureaucrats, this party was against ethnic nationalism. It was democratic. It was populist. It advocated a kind of welfare state on a municipal level. So what's not to like? It was also anti-Semitic, and it mobilized Vienna's little people the non-Jews, against what uh, the followers of this party believed was the Jewish dominance in the capital. So it's no surprise that Vienna, Freud's city, is also the city in which in the mid-1890s, Zionism achieves its first modern formulation from Theodor Herzl, an editor of the reigning liberal newspaper, also Jewish-owned. And this, uh, this formulation is called The Jewish State, a book he wrote in 1897. And it is also the city, and if you can look at the map on the other side of your outline, you'll see, in which only a decade later, the young Adolf Hitler, unemployed, down on his luck, is rejected by the Vienna Art Academy and spends years looking around and observing the scene. This is Freud's world. And these things are present at almost every turn in Freud's thought. And yet, things are not quite so simple. Vienna was in some ways a very small city, especially if you were a student there. And the leadership of the most prominent people in these movements, Austrian Social Democrats, German Racial Nationalists, and Christian Socials, all knew each other personally. They had cut their political teeth together as members of a radical student organization at the university, the Reading Society of German Students, where Nietzsche's books were a favorite topic. And Freud was a member of this society as well. Now, it was connections like these, political friends who were personal enemies, and vice versa, personal friends who lead uh, hostile political parties to each other, 
that made the Austrians say about their state, the situation is hopeless, but not serious. This kind of summons up the Viennese reputation for frivolity and ambivalence. Vienna was a city made for the development of a psychology like Freud's, stressing ambivalence, where a concept like love-hate relationship doesn't seem paradoxical the way it does elsewhere, but all too obvious, where it's really bred in the bone. Now, in the mid-1890s, with the national political situation already de degenerating, the Christian Social Party wins the municipal elections in the city of Vienna with their candidate, uh, Karl Weger, known as actually Pretty Karl, Handsome Karl. Emperor Franz Josef vetoes this election two times running, using his veto power, causing Freud, a lifelong opponent of the conservative Habsburgs, to actually toast the old man. But after the Christian Socials run the third election in a row in 1897, Franz Josef bows to the popular will and confirms the election of this man, Karl Weger, as mayor. And this blow to Freud came only a few months after his father had died, the single most difficult event in a man's life, Freud said. Now, historians who have tried to psychoanalyze Freud from afar have suggested that it was Freud's guilt over his unresolved hostility toward his father, coupled with his political guilt at not doing something that his father hadn't uh, dared to do, uh, that his father had failed to do, to take personal action to uh, fight against the anti-Semites, perhaps by undertaking a political career, that fed Freud's energies, which he then transposes into psychoanalysis, which could also be seen, you could say, as an assault, a theoretical assault, on a hostile Christian civilization. At any rate, it's exactly this juncture that Freud begins his self-analysis to find the answer to the riddles that he had been trying to solve since the 1880s. And he uses his own psyche as a laboratory to find out universal truths about human beings, not by self-hypnosis or free association, but by the analysis of his dreams. Dreams, he says, are the royal road to the unconscious. And the result is his path-breaking book, The Interpretation of Dreams, published in 1900. This, uh, title isn't really translated correctly. It should be uh, not really interpretation. It should be decoding or deciphering or unraveling. It's what you do with a set of hieroglyphics. Now, as Freud turns inside himself and looks deep through his dreams into the unconscious, he looks into a realm that cannot speak to us clearly. It's always going to be something that has to be decoded, interpreted. And his self-analysis and the view of human nature that underlies it radically undermined the certainties of the mid-19th century by dissolving distinctions that had once been articles of faith. The distinction between dreaming and waking, uh, he doesn't think that's very important, although it underlies, really, uh, rationalism and liberalism. The distinction between childhood and adulthood uh, and especially the Victorian notion of the innocent child, he throws that out. For him, there is no childhood innocence. Children enter the world as deeply sexual beings. 
Moreover, the distinction between childhood and adulthood is meaningless for him because you always carry your past with you, and nothing ever goes away. It might be hidden, but as we move through life, we carry the frustrations and the angers and the desires of our childhood with us. He also dissolves the distinction between reason and emotion, a central dichotomy to the Enlightenment project. For Freud, there's no beacon light reason that allows us to steer a straight course. Now, it's true he's still a man of science, but his science tells him just how very tainted and infected man's reason is by all of the emotional baggage he carries, his wishes, his angers, his fears. The science, therefore, tells him to suspect the reasons that people offer themselves for their own behavior. Reason, at best, he says, is a clever negotiator, putting together our needs and those of the societies around us in a package that we hope, if we can get some self-understanding through psychoanalysis, both we and society can live with. So to summarize, the breakdown of these distinctions are Freud's contribution to our modern consciousness. Are they really so new? Many of the distinctions he's dissolving have really only very recently been drawn in the first place. Take dreaming. As far back as biblical times, when Joseph rose to prime ministership of Egypt by interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh, people have accorded a mysterious special significance to the dreaming state, a key to some higher reality. It's only in the 17th century with Descartes that the question of whether we can really reliably know the difference between dreaming and reality seems for educated people to be solved. And the distinction between childhood and adulthood is the dissolution of this distinction really such a good idea. The idea that children are not just small-scale versions of adults was something that the early 19th century prided itself on recognizing with their child labor legislation and their establishment of children's literature. This was a conceptual advance, they thought, that allowed a whole series of humanitarian interventions. And the distinction between reason and emotion, how very recent, after all, is European civilization's pride in uh, its, a man's ability to master his emotions, his bad thoughts. Hadn't Luther and many before him insisted that the counsels of our better judgment are simply playthings for our desires? It's only really the Enlightenment and its 19th century successors that convinced Europeans for the first time that reason could master the irrational. These distinctions painfully achieved over a century and a half of enlightenment and humanitarianism are now over, according to Freud. And what about the distinction, the cornerstone of our pride between sickness and health, sanity and madness? Did he dissolve that? Actually, Freud and later psychoanalysis itself didn't have much to say about true madness, about the 1% of the population we would call today psychotic, uh, people who hear voices from Mars telling them what to do. Freud was never really concerned with the mentally ill, with the delusional. It was with the emotionally ill, people who had a disorder in their feelings. And the forms of sickness he chose to investigate 
are precisely those that are very difficult to distinguish between from forms of health. For Freud, we're all, in one way or another, neurotic. We're all at least potentially dysfunctional. We are all victims of forces in part from within us. If we're lucky, we can live with them, but we can't make them go away. And if we can't live with them, we try therapy. But the function of therapy is not to make life happy. It's to make life bearable. Unhappiness, he thinks, is inevitable precisely because the deepest desires and wishes of the individual sexual union with his parents, for example, and the demands of society are inevitably in conflict. Individual drives and urges and desires, the id, all these forces of love and aggression within us are inevitably frustrated by the social order. And it is inevitable because there can be no society without repression. Freud expressed some of these ideas in Civilization and its Discontent, a book he wrote in 1930. The title here is also badly translated. Uh, he's really, it should, better translated would be the discomfort inside of culture, uh, inside of civilization. Civilization is like a hair shirt uh, or a shirt that doesn't fit. We have to live in it, uh, but we can't really move around in it. Or it's like a womb in which it's difficult uh, to breathe. There's no getting away from it. We have to sort of pretend to like it, uh, but we don't. Much as one, Freud said, if we succeed in transforming hysterical misery into commonplace unhappiness. Now, this is a very different world from the optimistic world of Adam Smith, of Marx even, of Darwin. Now, Freud's influence on 20th century intellectuals, especially in America, has been tremendous. Uh, particularly, of course, uh, urban intellectuals, but he is also well-known in middle America, influencing everyone from Alfred Hitchcock in his movies uh, to Time magazine. Medicine has pretty much ignored Freud in recent years, but his influence on humanists, and especially in literature, film, cultural studies departments, continues today. And you can see why. Freud's is not a Baconian uh, science. Uh, Freud's is an interpretive he uses the same skills as literary criticism, close attention to texts, to dual and triple meanings, to ambiguities, to ambivalences, to the unreliable narrator who is the person on the couch. And many of Freud's insights, his projection on projection on the unconscious, had already been embodied in characters in novels before he gave them uh, names. And so they ring true with the same validity of any insight. But it is not as science, but as literature, that his achievement has lasted. Now this week, you have been given the opportunity to read Freud's first thorough case history, which served for years as the model for students in psychoanalysis. It allows us to be a fly on the wall in Bergasse 19, his home and office, Listen to how a psychoanalysis analysis actually takes place. In this case, with a patient who, in his words, was motivated by an almost malignant vindictiveness. This was an adolescent who took the opportunity for some really remarkable achievements 
in the direction of intolerable behavior. Now, your reactions are probably quite various. In my own case, I found very plausible Freud's argument that a person will always reveal what he is trying to conceal in his very choice of words. Even if his lips are silenced, he chatters with his fingertips, betrayal oozes out of him at every pore. And so I found myself continually turning Freud's analysis on himself. When he announces that sexuality is the key to the neurosis and that no one who disdains this key will ever be able to unlock the door, I noticed that Freud is figuring himself as the phallic penetrator of the feminine consciousness of Dora, and I wonder why. And when she mentions smoke and he remarks, I came to the conclusion that the idea had probably occurred to her one day during a sitting that she would like to have a kiss from me. And I was interested in his free association. And I was interested in the way he figured himself both as Jacob wrestling with the biblical angel and as a martyr victim in commenting on Dora's decision to break off treatment. No one who, like me, conjures up the most evil of those half-tamed demons that inhabit the human breast and who seeks to wrestle with them can expect to come through the struggle unscathed. So the readings this week allow us to see science up close and personal. We see the unselfconscious, almost endearing way that Darwin simply puts out there his unproven assumption upon which his whole argument for sexual selection rests. As he says of the peacock's beautiful display, it's incredible that all this should be purposeless. And so he expects our immediate assent. Someone might say, it's incredible to you, but it makes sense to me. And we see how the different personalities of the scientists intervene in their assessment, in the case of Darwin and Freud, directly against each other. Here is Darwin on the mechanism of sexual selection. We have distinct evidence with some quadrupeds and birds that the individuals of one sex are capable of feeling a strong antipathy or preference for certain individuals of the other sex. And Darwin notes a whole series of characteristics that have come into existence, he believes, because some reptile or other, some bird or peahen, exercised, in his words, choice. In contrast, we have Freud, who quickly diagnoses Dora as hysterical precisely because, like Darwin's reptile or peahen, she felt a strong antipathy to a certain individual of the other sex. Here is Freud's axiom. I should, without question, consider a person hysterical in whom an occasion for sexual excitement elicited feelings that were preponderantly or exclusively unpleasurable. And, quote, we never discover a no in the unconscious. As one of my History 5 students last year summed up the Dora case, the message of Freud's analysis of Dora is, no does not always mean no. So I hope you have fun discussing it this week.